Good evening. An amended autopsy report says a young black man who died in police custody in Colorado was given an overdose of ketamine by a paramedic. Unrest grows in Iran. Rashida Tlaib takes on Jamie Diamond. Alex Jones calls the court rigged. And L.A. faces an epidemic of overdoses in its schools. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Friday, September 23rd, 2022. An amended autopsy report released today revealed Elijah McCain, a 23-year-old black man who died in police custody in Aurora, Colorado, died because he was injected with ketamine by paramedics after being forcibly restrained. The report said, simply put, this dosage of ketamine was too much for this individual and it resulted in an overdose. The original autopsy report, signed November 7, 2019, said McCain's cause of death could not be determined. New information emerged during a grand jury investigation, prompting the state attorney general to order a second autopsy. The amended report comes one month after two police officers, a former officer, and two paramedics were indicted and could be charged with manslaughter and other crimes. McCain was walking home from a convenience store in 2019 when a 911 caller accused him of acting suspiciously. Apparently, he was wearing a face mask. The cop's body cam footage tells part of the story. Don't get up, dude. It's not going to be good for you. I'm telling you right now. He was put into a carotid. He did lose consciousness. He's throwing up right now, and he's obviously on something. Yeah. He's going to. We're going to have to have him transported. What's that? An attorney for McLean's family, Mare Newman, describes what happened next for the news. Elijah was on the ground. He was begging for his life. He was pleading. He was saying that he was Elijah McLean. He was just trying to go home. Uh, you can hear in this absolute gut-wrenching video as Elijah is saying, I don't do fighting. I don't have a gun. I don't even kill flies. I don't eat meat. I don't judge people. I mean, it is an absolutely heartbreaking video to listen to. Um, as Elijah was uh, on the ground with multiple officers on him and handcuffed, he began vomiting. Officers stood by joking and said, don't get that on me. And one who apparently believed that Elijah wasn't lying still enough as he was dying uh, said, quit messing around or I'm going to bring in my dog to bite you. The lack of humanity, the callousness, just the brutality is overwhelmingly terrible. Is this how Aurora police act? Unfortunately, the Aurora Police Department has a long and sordid history of brutality and racism. And, you know, to remind listeners, this is the same department that uh, escorted James Holmes, who had just um, shot multiple people in a movie theater and was very heavily armed, active shooter, but white, escorted him out of the theater with no problem whatsoever. So this is a very racist department. The Aurora Police Department just can't sink any lower. Last weekend, there was a violent vigil here, just as there was last weekend in New York, in New York's Washington uh, Square Park. And the Aurora Police came out in force in riot gear, deploying stormtroopers to to deal with violinists against 
peaceful protesters and violinists who are simply having a vigil to honor the life of a dead young man. Why are violinists and string instrument uh, musicians so moved by this case? Elijah was uh, not just a peaceful person, but also a musician. He taught himself to play both the violin and the guitar. Uh, he would take his lunch breaks and go and play his violin for animals who were waiting to be adopted because he thought it soothed them if they were lonely. I mean, he was just an incredibly lovely young man who, with a peaceful soul who liked to play music. In the summer of 2020, after the killing of George Floyd, a mass movement against police violence swept the country. McCain's case was the subject of a protest in Washington Square Park that summer. Dozens of musicians playing the violin, McCain's favorite instrument. Pachelbel's Canon, Elijah McCain's favorite piece. The amended autopsy report states the coroner's office reviewed evidence not available at the time of the original, including body camera footage and witness statements. The coroner says the evidence was requested prior to the initial autopsy report, but was not provided or only partially provided. And in international news, the United States says it will ease internet controls on Iran to counter a crackdown on protests sparked by a woman's death in police custody. Masa Amini, 22, fell into a coma last week, hours after morality police arrested her for allegedly breaking headscarf rules. Officers reportedly beat her head with a baton and banged her head against one of their vehicles. The police have said there's no evidence of any mistreatment and that she suffered a sudden heart failure. Meanwhile, anti-government protests continued for an eighth straight night on Friday, while pro-regime rallies also took place in Tehran and other cities. Footage shared on social media on Friday showed large crowds of protesters gathering in several Tehran neighborhoods after dark, while other incidents occurred elsewhere in the country. During the protests, women have defiantly taken off their hijabs and burned them or cut off their hair in front of cheering crowds. Back in Washington, during a hearing before a House subcommittee on Wednesday, Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan asked the CEOs of the seven biggest banks in the United States, does your bank have a policy against funding new fossil fuel projects? The CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Diamond, responded in the negative. Do you know um, you have all committed, as you all know, uh, to transition the emissions from lending and investment activities to align with pathways to net zero in 2050? Do you know uh, what the International Energy Energy um, Agency has said is required to meet our goal, global 2050 net zero targets of limiting global temperature rise to 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit or 1.5 degrees Celsius? So no new fossil fuel production starting today. That's So that's like zero. So I would like to ask all of you and go down the list because again, you all have agreed to doing this. Please answer with a simple yes or no. Does your bank have a policy against funding new oil and gas products? Mr. Diamond. Absolutely not. And that would be the road to hell for America. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine, sir. Tlaib responded, yeah, that's fine. That's fine, sir. You know what? Everybody that got relief from student loans that has a bank account with your bank should probably take out their account and close their account. 
Increases in average global temperature by the year 2100 are expected to be between the range of half a degree with aggressive mitigation of greenhouse gases to as much as 8.6 degrees. The likely increase is 2.7 degrees. If the temperatures rise by 2 degrees, climate scientists predict fiercer storms, rising seas, and massive extinctions with heat waves, smog, and disease killing millions. And the news is going to the movies on the must-watch list, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, produced by Abigail Disney. The 62-year-old filmmaker, activist, and Disney heiress, her grandfather is Disney co-founder Roy O. Disney, and her beloved great-uncle is Walt Disney. In the film, Disney investigates allegations of worker exploitation within the theme parks that bear her family name. She discovered horror stories of workers unable to afford a home living in their cars in the Disney World parking lot in Anaheim, California, and economic coercion of city government to get perks that benefit the company that gave us Mickey Mouse and many other beloved characters. Abigail Disney spoke with the news today. My grandfather had a whole philosophy about how nobody's too good to pick up a piece of garbage. And so he would always, the CEO, go in there and pick up a piece of garbage from the ground in a kind of way that everybody could see him do it. That just has been so unfortunate in American life. We've elevated CEOs to practically saint-like status, and we look upon the hourly workers as these lowly peons who deserve what they're getting. It's just such a contrast. Yeah. My grandfather owned a roofing company, and he we're the same age, you and I almost. And he used to uh, say, you put your name on something, and, and you put your word behind it, and that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. My grandfather would have totally related to that. He was one of those sort of salt-of-the-earth, old-fashioned guys. I mean, his, his <laughs> politics would horrify you, right. but he was actually Every- <laughs> a really good guy. How did you uh, begin to understand times had changed? How did you get the idea of doing this? I know you're a documentarian, and as a documentarian, as a reporter, I'm always looking for a story. So you're always looking for a story. How did you pick this one? (laughs) Exactly. Well, somebody reached out to me. One One of the workers at Disneyland sent me a Facebook message. I knew the problem. Somewhere in the back of my head, I knew it the way most Americans know all the bad things. And then you kind of have so much going on, you let yourself sort of not know the things you know and so when somebody reached out to me directly and said this is really hard and is there any way you could help us it was not possible to simply unknow it the way I had been all that time I mean I'm ashamed to admit that but it's true so I felt like I owed them the courtesy of going there and just being with them and listening to what they had to say it was a year before I started the film that I went out there and visited with them. It was just me and my daughter and a bunch of union workers, and I took a lot of notes, and I wrote this long email to Bob Iger, which I'm sure made him roll his eyes practically out of his pocket. It's not just the wages. It's just the level of indignity that it just comes with being the hourly worker. And it was really horrifying to me. I wrote him this long, long, long email. He gave me a very unsatisfying answer. And then I spontaneously answered a question on live television about his compensation. When that went viral and I saw how deep that nerve was that I hit Mm -hmm. when I was sort of saying that, like, nobody's worth $66 million, especially not when people who he employs are at the food bank. And that hit 
such a nurse that I knew I had something there, and that's when we decided to make the film. Mm -hmm. What did you discover? What are some of these indignities that you cover in the documentary? We mainly focus on pay, although there's a lot more that we could talk about if we wanted to. Things like, you know, they used to have an employee cafeteria um, that where the food was free, but now they don't have a cafeteria, and then they pay for it. And it used to be they paid a discount, but now they pay full park prices for their food, which is insane because it's famous how bad those prices are. Gradually stripping away these dignities. We found that many of the employees can't afford their own health care plan. There's an education plan, but they can't make the time for it because they're just too busy working the hours. Lots of employees can't live close enough to the park to make it less than a two-hour commute, so many of them sleep in their cars. Winnie the Pooh died. A woman who played Winnie the Pooh for eight years, six days a week, died in her car a few years ago. And then we talk a little bit about the constant strong-arming of the Anaheim government for subsidies and tax breaks. And we use the prime example of a $100 million parking lot that Anaheim took on the bond to build, charges $1 a year to Disney for rent. At the end of the term, Disney will own it after having paid, taken no risk, borrowed no money, and paid $1 a year. And they get to charge whatever they want without taxes for the 10,000 parking space inside. That's an example of just, there is no justifying that on behalf of the citizens of Anaheim. If I lived in Anaheim, I'd be furious. Some employees of Disney have to sleep in their cars. Winnie the Pooh, she played Winnie the Pooh for eight years, six days a week. And one morning she didn't show up for work. She was sleeping in her car and she had died in her car. It crushed everybody. They were so brokenhearted about it. Lots of them sleep in their cars. And you'll see if you watch the film, there's a scene where I ask them, like, how many of you know somebody who's on food stamps? How many of you sleep in your cars? How many of you forego medical treatment? And all the hands go up to all those questions. It's horrible. The good news is that one of the unions, the hotel mates in Anaheim, have just negotiated contracts for 2350 so that's huge. It's, it's a sign that they're getting the message. That they can't get away with this any longer. 2250 is very close to being a living wage in Anaheim. So it's a, it's a, that's a big deal. And for some reason, there's no press about it. Nobody's talking about it. I don't think Disney wants the word to get out right. <laughs> because they have all these other contracts to negotiate. But when the employees raise their voices, when they stay together, when they work in the union, they can get results and they should keep up the pressure. Thanksgiving must be tough. <laughs> You're costing yeah. the family so much money. So, great. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> tell me about it. Disney heir and filmmaker Abigail Disney. In 2018, Disney CEO Bob Iger collected $65 million, or 1,424 times the median salary of a Disney employee. And the Queen has been laid to rest. The national anthem of the UK changed to reflect the need for God to save the King. But the pomp and circumstance at the royal funeral was a smokescreen to some who say, like the British Commonwealth, the myth of the Queen is meant to distract from the crimes of centuries of British imperialism in what at one time was the world's greatest empire.
A professor at the University of Minnesota, Dr. Rose Brewer, was chairperson of the Department of African American and African Studies. Brewer is also an activist with the Black Alliance for Peace, a group that's critical of the new U.S. military African command known as AFRICOM. She says the narrative spun to mythologize the queen, left out a legacy of murder by British imperialists, and the narrative began with the crushing of a rebellion in Kenya that occurred on the visit to the British colony by then Princess Margaret when her father died and she became the sovereign. The 70-year reign coincided directly with struggles against colonialism and the Kenyan struggle. The story is even deeper and more horrific than one would imagine, not only the tremendous number of people who were Kenyans, African Kenyans, black Kenyans who were killed, but the imprisonment, the gulag of what I would call Britain, extended to tens of thousands of more. That was suppressed for a very long time. We think in the U.S., the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration, but it was certainly an expression of a set of policies that, of course, in, were in resistance to the struggle against colonialism by the Kenyans. So it was death, murder, mass imprisonment, attempting to maintain colonial structure in place, which in fact, not only remnants of it, but continues to prop up a neo-colonial class of folks. So a lot of those structures that were put into place or propagated under colonialism, the structures make possible the continuation of a neo-colonial legacy. The queen was presented as paragon of stability. It's really been interesting to see the media framing, the the reign, uh, the rule of the Windsors under Elizabeth II, of course her her death recently. There are a lot of counter-narratives that didn't surface by the mainstream media about who Queen Elizabeth II was treated as being on top of things, knowing what the prime minister was doing, following the data, but on the other, being apparently unaware of neocolonialism under the ongoing issues of her Mm -hmm. commonwealth, which includes a number of countries under the so-called queen or the monarchy. Was that what was the Commonwealth of bringing together people? Was it Kumbaya, the former colonial master, and the colonialists got together um, and sang songs together and and forgave each other? Right. I mean, that's back to the you know the the framing that you you led with that this whole stability framing, which invisibilizes British capital, which invisibilizes the deep relationship with U.S. militarism, deeply entangled. With that, certainly not the empire it once was. British finance, British militarism is absolutely connected to NATO. To profane innocence with all of that being structurally very key to what we know as Great Britain, quote Great Britain, and especially London as being the heart of British capitalism. All of that was erased. It did emerge in the context of a few of the counter-protests and Definitely around the world, a youthful response back, pushback against this particular kind of framing of innocence. One of the things that did emerge in the conversations about the past of Elizabeth II was Great Britain is not in the best of, at least the working class in Great Mm -hmm. Britain, Britain is not in the best of 
of shape. Inflation is high. They're dealing with the rise of nationalism in a more intense form. There's probably a whole nother story about Brexit and, and what that uh, whipped up among the the working classes, the white working classes of Britain. One thing that the monarchy did was had have this veneer, whether you want to call it stability or not, but it certainly had representation of a sort that uh, if you don't dig very deeply, you get a very partial story mm-hmm. about what's really at play. The position that Black Alliance for Peace has taken is certainly very much implicated in empire and in some ways a cover for it. Uh, is the queen innocent? Not innocent. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Rose Brewer is a professor at the University of Minnesota. Speaking in Pittsburgh today, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy advised voters to stick with Republicans in November. He announced a new plan he calls a commitment to America that he promises will end inflation and crime. That's what happened with the Democrats because that's their, they control Washington. They control the House, the Senate, the White House. They control the committees. They control the agencies. It's their plan. But they have no plan to fix all the problems they created. But President Joe Biden, speaking at a Democratic National Committee event, blasted McCarthy by name, saying the House leader left out the most important issue in the upcoming contest, the right of women to choose an abortion. The House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, went to Pennsylvania and unveiled on what he calls a commitment to America. That's a a thin series of policy goals with little or no detail that he says Republicans are going to pursue if they regain control of the Congress. In the course of nearly an hour, here's a few of the things we didn't hear. We didn't hear him mention the right to choose. We didn't hear him mention Medicare. We didn't hear him mention Social Security. So let's take a look at what Kevin said today. He said Republicans want to, quote, preserve our constitutional freedom. That sounds great. I'm for doing that as well. We all are. But look at what they've actually done. The MAGA Republicans just cheered and embraced the first Supreme Court decision in our entire history, the first one in our entire history, that just didn't fail to preserve a constitutional freedom. It actually took away a fundamental right that had been granted by the same court. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump was at one of his campaign-style rallies, this time in Wilmington, North Carolina. He tore into New York Attorney General Letitia James, who filed a $250 million lawsuit against Trump and his company for fraud. Before the rally, Trump fell further down the rabbit hole of QAnon conspiracy theories, reposting a video associated with the shadowy conspiracy group. And a day after conspiracy theorist Alex Jones told a jury delivering an award to parents of Sandy Hook that he's done apologizing for accusing them of faking their own children's death, Today, he was full of bluster again as he entered the Connecticut courthouse, accusing the court of fraud. Hey, everybody. How's it going? And then I can't even respond or defend myself. But they know the public still thinks we need trials, so they're using a trial in damages and acting like it's a regular trial. So basically, it'd be like a boxing match where one guy has his arms tied behind his back and a gag in his mouth. So this is totally rigged. It's an absolute total fraud. This is not a trial. The judge has already found me guilty. She's restricted basically anything I can talk about. And the other side knows that. So they ask me questions and she allows them to do this that they know I'm not allowed to answer. 
conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. Jones returns to the witness stand next week. And finally, Los Angeles public schools will stock campuses with the overdose reversal drug naloxone in the aftermath of a student's death. The move, which will affect some 1,400 elementary, middle, and high schools, is for the district's newly expanded anti-drug strategy. The death of 15-year-old Melanie Ramos, who died in a school bathroom last week after ingesting a pill that she brought from another student, has left the campus community reeling. contained fentanyl, an opioid that is deadly in small doses. Naloxone is highly effective at reversing opioid overdoses if administered quickly by a nasal spray or injection. Los Angeles Unified School District Superintendent Alberto Carvalho made the announcement today. Effective the second week of October, every one of our schools at LA Unified will be outfitted with the appropriate tools including, including Narcan, available for students who may experience a condition of overdose through the consumption, the ingestion of fentanyl in any type of format. California law allows K-12 schools to administer naloxone. New York high schools can stock the drug, and Rhode Island requires every school to have naloxone on hand. And that's the news for Friday, September 23rd, 2022. The news is produced, written, and anchored by me, Paul DiRienzo. You can find the news at pauldurienzo.com and SoundCloud. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.